we're going to look at John. So we're going to start John chapter, starting in chapter one. Full disclosure, I do not enjoy John. He and I don't speak the same language. He's very poetic and uses a lot of metaphor and flowery language. And I'm kind of a just say what you mean kind of guy. So I've avoided. He's the last gospel that we uh, are doing. Um, but it, it, he, he provides a different perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. That means from the same viewpoint. And when you read them, they sound like they were all sitting around the same table. They have a lot of the same stories. Um, you see a lot of the same miracles, a lot of the same interactions between Jesus and other people. And then you read John and you wonder who, who he was with. It's completely different. There's no birth story. There's no parables. There's only two miracles that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are also in John, feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Very, very different book. Provides a very different Perspective. It was the last gospel written. It was written maybe in the early 90s A.D. Jesus, just for perspective, died at the latest 33 A.D. So you're talking about a book that's written maybe 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, traditionally, it's been understood to be written by uh, John, one of Jesus' three uh, inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers, the sons of Zebedee. As you read the book of John, the gospel, you never see the disciple John mentioned by name, but there is this person mentioned, the beloved disciple, and you can decide what that means if John calls himself the beloved disciple, but most people think that's him. That, that's who he is in the book, and we'll go with that. Uh, no reason to think otherwise. It's the most theologically developed of all of the gospels, and again, as we read it, you'll, you'll see that. The structure there is up on the screen. If that just helps you get your bearings in the book, there's an 18-verse prologue. It's one of the richest uh, sections in all of the Bible. There's the last chapter is an epilogue, and in between, the main content of the book is divided roughly in half. The first half covers three years of Jesus' life. It focuses on, on his identity, who is Jesus, and then the second half of the book covers two weeks. First half covers three years, the second half covers 15 days, and it focuses on what Jesus did, namely his death and his resurrection. Uh, so we're going to just jump in this morning, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Through the word, all things were made. Without the word, nothing was made that has been made. In the word was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through John the Baptist all might believe. John the Baptist himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The true light came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive the true light, to those who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of the fullness of the Son, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made the Father known. The end of John's book, he tells us why he wrote the gospel. It's in John 20. And he says, the reason I wrote this is so that y'all would know who Jesus is, which makes sense because the first half of the book is devoted to um, describing and identifying Jesus. Uh, You see that there at the prologue. This is John's introduction to to Jesus, saying "Here's, here's who Jesus is. He says in that passage there in John 20, there's lots of other stories out there. You can read them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The ones that I've collected and the sayings that I've collected The purpose behind all of that is so that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew and Luke both begin with a birth story. Those are the the Christmas stories that we all know. John doesn't begin that way. He wants to introduce Jesus to us in a a different way. And what we're going to look at today is that introduction. It's, It's the first impression that we get of Jesus through John. Remember, this is written 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So the guys who are reading it from the, for the first time, they have a very similar perspective to us in terms of they already know the end of the story. And so we're not going to pretend that we don't as we look at these first 18 verses. We're not going to look at John the Baptist this morning. We'll look at him next week. So we're going to pull out verses 6, 7, and 8, and we're going to pull out verse 15. We're not going to look at those. And we're also going to skim the surface. We could spend six months uh, on these Uh, 18 verses, and we're not going to do that. I'm just going to hit the highlights because all of these themes come back. Life, light, belief, um, witness and testimony, the world, all of truth, all of those major things that you saw there, they're all going to come back around uh, throughout the first 12 chapters of the book. So we'll be able to dive into them in more depth later. So we're just going to, again, kind of hit the highlights. So what John is doing, again, is he's introducing Jesus to us, and he does that by using two metaphors, the word and light. And those two metaphors describe, paint a picture of who Jesus is, some identity, and the broad strokes of what Jesus did, his activity or his ministry. Not all of the details for sure. Again, this is just an introduction Two metaphors, word and light. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he did. And he also uses two names for Jesus. The name Jesus and the name the Son of God. And those speak to two different uh, elements of Jesus' identity. When Jesus is referred to as the Son, we tend to look up. We're thinking of the Son in relationship to the Father, Jesus as God. And we think of the name Jesus, we think of Joseph and Mary. They're the ones that gave him that name. We think of Jesus in his humanity, Jesus here among us on earth. And John uses both of those names, Jesus and the Son of God, both of those metaphors, word and life. They're all referring to the same person, the second person of the Trinity. So starting back over in verse 1, so in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So if you're listening to that for the first time and you know 
your Old Testament, which John's audience probably did, and they hear in the beginning, they're thinking, oh, I've heard that before. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there was nothing but God, and he made everything that was. And now we see John um, altering that reality a bit or filling that out, if you like. He's saying not just in the beginning, God, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word actually was God. That's a different understanding of God than you might get just from reading Genesis one. It's in our language, we would call that a Trinitarian understanding. You see the, 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 the hints of the doctrine of the Trinity. That word Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible, but you can see the truth and the concept Throughout the Bible, it's the idea that God is both one and three. Three persons, one God. And we see that here. The Word, or the Son, or Jesus, was with God, and he was God. For us, those are mutually exclusive categories. If I say, I am David Eldridge, and then I say, I'm with David Eldridge, that doesn't make sense, unless I have multiple personalities. Doesn't make sense. What I would say is I am David Eldridge and I'm with John Crager. Or John would say I am John Crager and I'm with David Eldridge. For us, those are mutually exclusive, but somehow in God they're not. And that's way above our ability to comprehend. But it's a truth that we see right here at the very beginning. The way John wants to introduce Jesus to us, this initial identity statement, is Jesus is God. He's divine. He was there in the beginning, and everything that we see was made through him. You can see my kind of translations there trying to, to add in the words word and son and creator and father so you can begin to see how those things interplay off of each other and what John is trying to communicate. We can lose some of that because he just says he throughout this first chapter, and I tried to fill in who the he was. We see father and son, both God. One God, distinct from one another. We see word and creator, God, but distinct from one another. We see, it, again, it's the, it's the beginnings of a Trinitarian understanding. So from the very beginning, the word, or Jesus, is introduced to us as divine. And then John moves and says, and here's what he did. And he changes the metaphor from word to light. And this is a bit confusing because he uses light to refer to two different things. So he says, in this word, or in Jesus, was life. Now, we know that that life, particularly when you see that word in John, it means spiritual life or abundant life or eternal life. Physical life, biological life was created by God. It was created on day three. It was created on day five. It was created on day six. You can, whatever you think about those days, that's not what we're talking about here. But physical life was created. But we see this life was in the word and the word precedes Creation. The word was not created, so it's, it's a different kind or quality of life. It's a spiritual life or eternal life. So this spiritual life was light. I would say it was, it was uh, spiritual enlightening or spiritual illumination. It was, it was eye-opening spiritually for everyone. And that light, that spiritual illumination, I would say it's the gospel. The gospel shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome the spreading of the gospel. So if you read Revelation, it's also written by John, probably pretty close to the same time. He's old at this point, so he didn't have a lot of time left to write letters. John is written, Revelation's written to seven churches. 
two and Revelation two and three, you can see the seven churches that John wrote to. He's a he's a pastor in exile. He's exiled on a mountain and excuse me on an island, and he's writing back to these seven churches that he has a relationship with. And many of them are being persecuted. And the whole book of Revelation, all of that symbolism and all of that imagery and all of that confusion is really just to say God wins. That's the whole point of the book. God wins. Right now you're being persecuted. Right now you're being kicked in the teeth. Don't worry, the good guys win in the end. And the bad guys get what they deserve. So here's a little hint of that in the Gospel of John in chapter 5. He's writing to this church, whoever they are. They're persecuted and he's saying to them, the gospel is shining in the darkness and the darkness doesn't win. The darkness does not overcome the light of this gospel message. Take heart in that. Be encouraged. Even though things may look bad for you or bleak for you right now, the darkness does not win. Skip down to verse 9. Now he changes the true light. Now he's talking about Jesus. He's not talking about the gospel. He's not talking about illumination spiritually. The true light that does illuminate, give light to everyone was coming into the world. So Jesus brings spiritual enlightenment to everyone. So we may think, man, does that mean everyone's going to become a Christian? If Jesus brings spiritual enlightenment to everyone, does that mean everyone in our language will be saved? Does it mean everyone will accept him? And we see very quickly that's not the case. This true light, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Jesus came to that which was his own, so he came to the Jewish people, they were his own, he was a Jew, but his own, the Jews, did not receive him. That doesn't mean every Jew rejected Jesus. John, who wrote the letter, is, he's a, or the gospel, is a Jew, and he accepted Jesus. The disciples were all Jewish. We know from the book of Acts there were Jews who turned to Jesus. So it's not saying every Jew rejects Jesus, but on the whole, in general, the nation that had been cultivated for 2,000 years to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah rejected the Messiah. And that honestly caused a lot of heartache for John. It caused the same for Paul. You can see that in some of their writings. They don't understand. How could these ones whom God has been grooming for so long then reject the fulfillment of the promise that God had made? It caused a lot. They were, there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of heartache. There was a lot of grief over the wholesale rejection of Jesus by the Jews. Again, not every one of them, but many of them. And that's what you see here. So we have Jesus enlightening everyone. But yet we still have people rejecting him. In fact, many of his own people reject him. Theologically, that doctrine is called provenient grace. It's grace that goes before. It's the idea that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus brings benefit to everyone who's ever lived. That doesn't mean everyone who's ever lived will be saved. It means that the eyes are open or ears are open to hear the gospel. Everyone can hear the gospel. Everyone can respond to the gospel, but not everybody will accept the gospel. The light shines on everyone, and yet there are those who reject, which is what we would see in our reality as well. The light shines on everyone. Everyone benefits from Jesus' death and resurrection. It's interesting. 1 Peter 1.20 says Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world. He was already picked out. And his death, and this is hard to, under, hard to fathom, works both forward and backwards. The benefits of his death, we get how they work forward because we think chronologically. 
But his, de- his benefits of his death also, also work backwards. So everyone benefits from the death of Jesus. Their eyes are opened to a degree where they can hear and, re- and respond to the gospel. But that's still a decision that people have to make. And we see here in John, many people choose to reject him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, those are synonyms, received and believed, he gave the right to become children of God. And these children are spiritually born. They're born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will. They're born of God. We'll see when we get to chapter 3, this whole idea of being born in the, in the Spirit or born of the Spirit. This is what John is talking about. What he's saying is, up until Jesus, the way to be a child of God, it had to do with your parents. It had to do with your nationality. It had to do with being a Jew. It didn't have to do with that anymore. Actually, most of the Jews rejected him. And the basis of relating to God is no longer your ethnicity. The basis for relating to God is now accepting, believing, receiving the light, the word, Jesus. And everyone who does, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their racial background, all of them have the right to become children of God because God said so. God adopts all of them into his family based on their acceptance of Jesus, not based on their lineage. And then he shifts. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's one of the most important sentences in all of the Bible. So we have this identity. Jesus is divine, the word. And then we have this ministry or this activity. What does he do? He brings spiritual enlightenment to everyone. He brings life. But not everyone accepts or receives that life. For those who do, they become children of God. And now we have a step back towards identity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen the glory of this Word, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The doctrine there is called the Incarnation. It's God becomes a man. Which is, again, put it in the category of things that are very difficult to understand along with the Trinity. How Jesus, he's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man. Which makes no sense to us. How you can be 100 and 100. But Jesus is. We just saw in the beginning, he was with God. He was God. Everything that was made was made through him. And yet... Somehow he steps into earth, and that's the birth stories that we read about in Matthew and in Luke. It's the Christmas story. And somehow God takes on flesh. He becomes one of us, flesh and blood. And he lives among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. There's a parallel between verse 9 and verse 14. The true light, the word, came into the world, took on flesh and dwelt among us, gave light to everyone. We've seen his glory, the glory of the Son, the glory of the one and only God. Those things, are they're saying the same thing. Those are incarnational statements. And again, huge, important truth, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, is to recognize he's both fully God and fully man. He's fully a human and he's fully divine. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a, a portable meeting place. It was a tent that Moses built at the instruction of God. The Israelites are wandering in the desert for 40 years and 
God and, and they're moving. And God says, as you're wandering, you bring this tent with you and you set it up everywhere you make camp. And that's where I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to meet with you in that place. And so the tabernacle became the place where God met with his people. It's where God, quote unquote, lived on the earth. If you want to know what's God's address, it's the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where people went to meet with God. And if you read through the Old Testament, the glory of God would fill the tabernacle. And then once the temple was built, the permanent sanctuary, the glory of God would fill the temple. Glory is an old, is an important concept in the Old Testament. It's, it's the, uh, the, maybe you can call it the manifest presence of God or the presence of God made known to his people. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere that he's not. And yet there, there are times and places where God makes himself known in a more significant way. And you maybe have experienced those in your own life. That's one of the things that uh, Jeremy and Bo were, were praying uh, during worship is that we would be more clued in to God's presence. Yes, he's everywhere. He's always everywhere. But there are times and places where we're more aware of his presence. And, and maybe if we can use Old Testament language where he pulls the veil back a little bit and we have a, a, a stronger sense of his nearness to us. Those holy moments and those holy places. That was what the tabernacle was. And the glory of God filled the tabernacle. It's where God, quote, lived in the Old Testament. And what John, using that language deliberately, is saying is, Jesus is the New Testament reality of that. He's the tabernacle. He's this walking and talking, eating and sleeping presence of place where, where God, quote, lives on the earth. In the New Testament, where does God live? He lives in Jesus. He is God. Where do we meet with him? In Jesus. He is God. He's this New Testament picture of the Old Testament tabernacle. So we have identity Jesus is God. Identity, Jesus is human. He's both of those things. God in the flesh. And then John closes by looking again at ministry or activity. Out of the fullness of the Son or out of the fullness of Jesus, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is God himself and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made the Father known. What Jesus did, and this is not, no details given here. It'll take the rest of the book to unpack, and actually the rest of the, the, the New Testament is, Jesus is instituting a new covenant. He doesn't just bring spiritual enlightenment. He brings life. He also establishes a new way of relating with God. The Old Covenant, the old way of relating with God is found primarily in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Numbers. It's the, the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it was grace. Sometimes when we hear law, we don't think grace. But John says that was grace already given. God didn't have to do that. God was under no obligation to tell the Israelites. He was under no obligation to choose the Israelites as his own people. He was under no obligation to tell the Israelites this is what it looks like. To be my people, this is what I expect of you. And he certainly was under no obligation to build into the law, the sacrificial system that said, when you blow it, here's how you take care of it. That's all grace. None of that was deserved. God, in his grace, chose the Israelites to be his people. God, in his grace, said, here, 
I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And here's what that looks like on your end. And it's grace for him to say, and when you screw up and you will, here's how we're going to take care of those sins through the sacrificial system. That's why so much of that that bogs you down as you're reading, particularly in Leviticus, they're killing animals again and again and again. It's because people sin again and again and again. And God in His grace has made provision for the sins of His people embedded in the law. And, And John says that was grace already given. We get more grace now. Grace on top of grace. We get the fullness of grace. Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats, they don't, it doesn't cleanse you from your sins. It can't make you perfect, meaning whole or complete. In fact, that sacrificial system, all that does is remind you of your sins. And you can think, of, imagine if every time you sinned, you had to bring an animal and sacrifice it. Where are you out? Every time you're bringing it, you screwed up again. Every time you're bringing an animal, it reminds you of the sin that you committed. Think if you're a head of household and you're doing that for your whole family. Every time you sin, every time your spouse sins, every time your kid, you're bringing these sacrifices. Reminds you of your sins on a regular basis. And Hebrews says we don't, have, we don't live under that covenant anymore. That's not the way we relate to God anymore. The blood of Jesus truly does cleanse us inside and outside, truly does make us whole. It does make us perfect in the sense of complete. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We're going to take communion in a minute. This is a tangible reminder of the new covenant. This juice represents the blood of Jesus, the blood of God poured out for us. His blood cleanses us. The blood of a goat doesn't. The blood of God does. It's a better covenant. It's the fullness of grace. The law were these, it's 613 laws. Keep these, don't keep these. Do this, don't do that. And there's truth in every bit of it. We have the fullness of truth in Jesus. Truth, not as a list of do's and don'ts, but truth as a person, as we'll see as we get into John. There was truth in the Old Testament law. There's more truth in the person of Jesus. Paul says about the law, it's a guardian or a tutor. It was intended to get us to Jesus. And we leave it behind so that we can live in faith. There's some promises in the Old Testament about the new covenant, this new way of relating to God. And God spoke through the prophets and he said, no longer is the, is the law going to be written on tablets of stone. That's old covenant. Now the law is going to be written on your heart. And... I'm going to put my spirit within you and he's going to move you to keep the law. It's not just that you're going to have it internalized. It's that you're going to be given the power to obey. I'm going to do that. I'm going to write the law in your heart and I'm going to empower you to obey that law. That's better truth. It's not truth as a list of do's and don'ts. It's truth as a living person, Jesus, who takes up residence within us by his Holy Spirit. It empowers us to walk in the way. It's more grace and it's more truth. Moses, his face, he, he was welcomed into the presence of God. At, there was a, a period of time where his face was 
glowing, for lack of a better word, because of the radiating presence of God. He wore a veil over his face so he wouldn't freak people out. He wanted to see God. He said, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And God said, you can't handle it. I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock. I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to pass by. And, you know, I'll tell you my name. Jesus is God. And let's look fully in the face of the Father. He reveals him to us. Not just his name, not just his back as he's passing by. But the full revelation of who God is is resident in Jesus. It gets in Hebrews where anyone who's seen, he's, he's the exact representation of God. And Jesus says of himself in John, anyone who's seen me, he's seen the Father. That's a better covenant. That's not the back of God as he's passing by. That's the face of God. And the guy who's writing this, John, physically saw Jesus. And he's saying, I looked in his eye, I saw I've seen the Father because I've seen the Son. It's a better covenant. It's a better way of relating. We have identity statements. Jesus is God and He's man. We have ministry statements. He brings life and He enlightens everyone, although not everyone will accept. He institutes a better covenant that's represented here by bread and juice. It's very tangible and physical and earthy because God took on flesh. The body of God was broken. The blood of God was poured out in order to establish a new way of relating to Him. And any who accept that, any who receive that, have the right to become children of God, to be adopted into His family as sons and daughters. It's an invitation for you this morning. Do you want to live under this new covenant of grace? Many of you have made a decision to follow Jesus, and that's wonderful. Some of you haven't. I would encourage you. What would it mean for you to put your trust in God who became man? The most famous verse in all of the Bible we'll get to in a few weeks. For God so loved the world that he gave. This is what he did. In order that you and me could have the opportunity to be adopted into his family. In order that you and I have the right to become children of God. How does that happen? It's not based on your resume. It's not based on your track record. It's not based on your lineage. It's not based on how well you've done or how poorly you've done. It's based on accepting, receiving, believing Jesus. And you're drawn into the family. And His blood is fully able to forgive you of every sin that you've ever committed. It's not the blood of animals that just cleanses us outwardly. It's not a sacrifice that's offered day after day after day to remind us of our sinfulness. It's a once and for all sacrifice from God, of God, in order to reconcile us to Him permanently. Many of you have made a decision to follow Him, and I would ask you this morning, are you living under this covenant of grace? Where do you need grace this morning, if grace is God's unmerited favor, where do you need that? Some of your bodies are broken. And you need grace. Whether that's grace for God to heal you, grace for God to strengthen you and enable you to continue to walk in that, whatever that condition is. We want to believe for healing. Psalm 103 says, God forgives us of all of our diseases, or excuse me, forgives us of all of our sins and heals us of all of our diseases. If 
that's you this morning. You need grace in your physical body. Some of you may need grace when it comes to a relationship. There's a relationship that's strained or maybe even severed. You need grace to figure out what does reconciliation look like? What's my part in this? Some of you may be facing a decision. You need grace. God, I need you to give me some direction. I don't know what to do. I don't deserve to be directed by you. But I'm asking you to speak to me, to lead me into the best way. You're the only one who can see around the corner. You know what's best. So would you lead me into those paths of righteousness? Where do you need grace this morning? The way we take communion here, you'll come up a row at a time. You'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. This is gluten-free communion. It'll stay here on the table if that's what you need. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corner. And we'll pray with you about anything. But I want to encourage you. Where do you need grace this morning? We have a tendency, I think, to say, well, somebody is in a worse position than me. And that's true. There's only one worst. I don't know who it is. One of you can decide. You're the worst. And then the rest of us are not in as bad a position as you. But we have the idea that, well, I'm not in the worst spot. And so I'm going to step back and other people can receive prayer. It doesn't work that way. God hasn't decided, hey, I'm going to work in the lives of four people today. First four up. It's not how it works. His grace is unlimited. Him working in my life doesn't mean he can't work in Bo's. He has enough for both of us. His supply is not finite. And when we cut ourselves off from grace, whether that's out of pride, I don't need anything, or some kind of distorted sense of humility, I'm going to let other people receive, neither of those is a good option. We want you to receive grace this morning as you take bread and dip it in juice and eat it. That's a physical reminder of the grace that God offers you, this new covenant that we get to live under. So where do you need it today? None of our lives are perfect. I want to encourage you after you take communion to let ministry teams pray for you. The logistics are bad. It's hard to find a spot. And if the teams are full, you feel silly not knowing where to go. I want to encourage you just to press through. Just wait. You can sit down on the front row and wait till a team is open. If you're a team praying for people, don't pray for 10 minutes. Just pray for them and move them on so somebody else can receive prayer. Is that good? If you're helping with ministry, please come forward. Even if you're not on the schedule, why don't you come forward? Let's make sure we have enough teams. If you're helping with communion, if you come forward. And I'm going to say a prayer. You guys can stand with me as we pray. If you would, Kim will um, signal the rows. You don't have to worry about when you need to come. Kim will signal you. In your heart, I want you just to begin to think through your life spiritually. You need grace. Physically, do you need grace? Relationally, do you need grace? Directionally, do you need grace? Mentally, emotionally, do you need grace?
Many of you, school starts this week. You may be going back as a teacher or an administrator. You may be sending a kid. You need grace to do that. That can be an emotional time, real expression of trust to send your kids out. Where do you need grace this morning? The Word became flesh and He lived among us a life of perfect obedience and faithfulness. He died a willing death as a sacrifice to pay the price for the sins that we've all committed so that in placing our faith and trust in Him in believing and accepting Him we, you and me have the right to become children of God to live as sons and daughters All that the Father has is available to you this morning. He doesn't throw you scraps. Anything that He has is available to you. You're a co-heir with Jesus. Where do you need grace this morning? Holy Spirit, I pray that for each of us in the room, men and women, students, that we would all recognize our own need and rather than papering over that need or trying to fill it on our own or diminishing that need and saying it's not really that big a deal, God, I pray that we would hear that as an invitation to trust you more and to receive more grace from you, the fullness of grace that you offer to us. difficult for many of us. We've all been raised to be independent. In many ways we've been raised to push other people to the front, to step to the back. God, I pray that this morning we would all recognize our need. As we break off bread and dip it in juice, it would encourage us and comfort us and strengthen us in faith to say those needs are all met in Jesus. And so that we would ask boldly as sons and daughters this morning. And I pray that you would work. I pray that you would work quickly. You recognize the limitations that we have with time and space, people. And I pray that none of those things would get in the way of you ministering to your people this morning. God, I pray for those in the room who have yet to place their faith and their trust. Who at this point, they've heard the gospel but they've not yet said yes. I pray today would be the day for them. That they would hear you speaking directly to their heart, calling them home as a father to a son or to a daughter. That they would yield to you in these moments. So come Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.